In the previous episode, we looked at what I consider to be the best hope and the strongest motivation for the belief that artificial intelligence could one day become actually intelligent. And this is the philosophical view that I called physical reductionism. We saw that there is widespread belief among computer scientists, neuroscientists, cognitive scientists, and philosophers of mind that the human mind is nothing more than a kind of biological computer. And according to this view, mental states and processes are nothing over and above the physical states and processes of the brain. We also saw that if this is true, then the idea of machine sentience is not only possible, but it's already actual, since every person on the planet is already a kind of wholly material thinking machine. So that the idea of, of creating a machine that is as intelligent and even more intelligent than a human being is entirely possible in principle on this view, even if not actually feasible given the current state of our technology. However, those who ground their belief in the possibility of a sentient AI on physical reductionism face a serious problem. It's a problem that, by extension, confronts any effort to construct an intelligent machine from the ground up. And this problem has its own name in the philosophy of mind literature. It's called the hard problem of consciousness. So what is the, the so-called hard problem of consciousness? Well, in order for us to see it clearly, let's review the philosophical position that I've called physical reductionism. Physical reductionism says that everything that exists is ultimately reducible to, or at least supervenient upon, the fundamental entities and properties postulated by physics. Now, last time I focused in on the notion of reductionism, the reductionistic part of this term, and we looked at several attempts to reduce or identify the mental to some aspect of the physical. If you remember, according to behaviorism, the mental is nothing but behavioral disposition. According to the identity theory, the mental is nothing but the brain. And according to reductive functionalism, the mental is nothing but a causal system of inputs and outputs. This is a radical claim. It says that your entire mental life is reducible to, is nothing over and above, the physical activity that's going on in your brain. That means your thoughts, your feelings, your intentions, your beliefs, your hopes, your dreams. These are nothing but swarms of particles in your skull, the firing of axons in your brain, or the electrochemical signals, signals between neurons. Your mind and the entirety of your mental life is completely reducible to the micro-physical realm, according to this view. But what exactly is meant here by the word physical and the term physical reductionism? What is this micro-physical realm like? Well, this is the world of, of molecules, of atoms, of fundamental particles like electrons and quarks. And we're told by modern physics that these fundamental bits of matter are describable solely in the mathematical language of physics. This means 
that these fundamental entities have strictly quantifiable properties, such as size and shape and motion, velocity, acceleration, spin, and structure. They have only those properties that are susceptible to mathematical description. Now, reality, as described by modern physics, is a very strange place. Our everyday experience is filled with an array of vivid objects, of rocks and trees and animals and cars and houses and people. It's a world that fills our senses with a myriad of colors, tastes, smells, and sounds. This manifest image of the world that we all know and experience is starkly different than the scientific image of the world described by quantum physics. Modern physics tells us that what we experience as rocks and trees and dogs and humans are really nothing but swarms of particles, which consist of mostly empty space. And these fundamental particles of which all material things are made lack all the qualitative properties that our everyday experience of objects seem to have. The fundamental particles, we are told, are colorless, they're odorless, they're tasteless, they're mindless. So when the physical reductionist tells us that the mental states and processes that we have are nothing over and above the physical states and processes in our brains, what is meant is that the rich experience of our mental lives is nothing but, nothing over and above the states and processes of the particles and molecules that make up our brains. But now we seem to have a problem, don't we? The problem is that there seems to be a serious mismatch between what's going on in our brains, as described by physics and neuroscience, and what's going on in our conscious experience of the world. I mean, think, think again about the physical description of your brain. It's objective, it's public, it's mind-independent. It's describable from a third-person point of view. The physical description of the brain and brain process is entirely knowable from the outside. It's accessible to anyone. Now, in stark contrast to this physical description of what, what's going on in your head, conscious experience is very different. It's subjective, it's private, it's mind-dependent, and it's describable only from a first-person point of view. And unlike the physical description of the brain, your conscious experience is only knowable from the inside. It's only accessible to you. In other words, there is something that it's like for you to be conscious, your subjective conscious experience. And this cannot be captured by the physical description of your brain. To see what I mean, let's do a thought experiment. I want you to think about a banana right now. I want you to see with your mind the shape of the banana, its yellow color, its texture, its smell. Now let's imagine that there was a team of neuroscientists surrounding you when you had your thought about a banana. And prior to your thought, they were able to completely remove the top half of your skull and observe all the physical activity that was going on in your brain. Let's imagine that they could see not only the gray, squishy mass of your brain, but even the neurons and the molecules of which it is made. Let's imagine that these scientists could see every fundamental bit of your physical brain so that when you had your thought about the banana, they could observe all of the physical activity that was going on in there. 
the electrochemical activity, for example, or the firing of axons, or what have you. So here's the question. When you had your thought about the banana a moment ago, could the neuroscientists who were observing your brain at that very moment, could they actually see, observe your thought about the banana? Could they see or observe the conscious experience that you had when you thought about the banana? Well, the answer here is clearly no. When you thought about the banana, your thought was about a certain shape, a certain color, a certain feel, a certain smell of the banana. But what the neuroscientists were observing were just some electrochemical events in your brain. Now, clearly what you experienced then and what the neuroscientists saw is not the same thing. Moreover, although the physical goings-on in your brain were public and observable from a third-person point of view, the point of view of the scientists, your conscious experience of thinking about the banana was completely private to you and available only from your first-person point of view. Now, again, the obvious implication is that the physical goings-on in your brain when you had the thought about the banana and your conscious experience of your thought cannot be the same thing. They cannot be identical. And what this means is that there is more to your subjective conscious awareness than what can be described in physical terms. Now, what I'm describing here is what philosophers of mind have called the hard problem of consciousness, which is the problem of explaining consciousness in terms of purely third-person material states. It's the problem of explaining mental realities in terms of mindless molecules. It's a problem that confronts any attempt to reduce or identify the mental with the physical, since there seems to be an unbridgeable logical and metaphysical gap between facts about brain chemistry and facts about conscious experience. But if consciousness is irreducibly subjective, private, and first-person in character, while any physical state or process is objective, public, and third-person in character, whether that be a brain state or a behavioral or functional process, then this means that the states of consciousness and the states of matter cannot be the same, and therefore that physical reductionism must be false. Now, as we've seen, and as you can right now verify by reflecting on your own conscious experience, there is, again, an irreducibly subjective nature to consciousness. There's a feel. There's a first-person perspective. There's something that it's like to be conscious. And this simply cannot be captured by a purely physical or chemical or biological description of your brain. This what-its-likeness of conscious experience has a technical name in the philosophy of mind. It's called qualia. Qualia is the name for the way things look, the way they feel, smell, taste, and sound from the first-person subjective point of view. There's something that it's like to taste an apple. There's something that it's like to see the color green, something that it's like to hear the national anthem, something that it's like to smell coffee, something that it's like to feel emotions, joy, and pain, and sorrow, and curiosity. There's something that it's like to think about the Pythagorean theorem. There's something that it's like to remember a loved one who has passed. 
And again, the problem is this. If the brain is made up of the same stuff as the rest of the physical world, purposeless, odorless, colorless, tasteless particles, then how do we account for this rich experience of qualia, of consciousness? It seems that facts about qualia are non-physical facts. They're facts additional to all the scientific facts about the material world. To see this, let's consider a famous thought experiment that has come to be known as the knowledge argument, or Mary's Room, as first formulated by philosopher Frank Jackson. Let's imagine a woman named Mary, who is a, a neuroscientist living in the future when science has given us a complete and exhaustive description of the brain. Now, Mary is in a very unique situation. She has lived her entire life in a single room, which she has never left. And it's a room that makes everything appear in black and white. Mary has never in her life seen color. But she has nevertheless mastered neuroscience and the physiology of color perception. She's learned everything there is to learn about the physics of color, about how the brain receives and processes electromagnetic radiation, of what happens when photons enter the eye, of the electrochemical signals that are triggered in the various parts of the brain, or whatever. She has a complete and exhaustive knowledge of color perception by the brain. Then let's suppose that one day Mary's door is opened and she's allowed to leave her black and white room. So she walks out and immediately sees a red apple. Now here's the question. Upon seeing the red apple, will Mary learn anything new from this experience? Now the answer seems obviously to be yes. Mary will learn for the first time what it is like to see the color red. Again, what this thought experiment shows is that the physical facts about brain chemistry are not all the facts that there are about perception. Mary knew all the physical facts involved in the perception of color. Yet when she saw the color red for the first time, she learned something new. She learned what it's like to experience redness. But this means that physical reductionism is false. There is something to consciousness that is over and above physics. There's something to conscious experience that is non-physical. The knowledge argument shows that physical facts are not all the facts that there are when it comes to perception. There's another famous thought experiment, this one from philosopher David Chalmers, that aims to show that physical reality does not, on its own, add up to mental reality. And it's called the zombie argument. Now here we're not talking about the walking dead type zombie. This is a philosophical conception of a zombie. Let's suppose that we are in the future and that scientists are able to make a molecule from molecule replica of some person. Let's call him Jones. So that after they've done their replication, we have original Jones and then his exact duplicate. Let's call him zombie Jones. Now, because zombie Jones is physically identical to Jones in every way, the two will also be indistinguishable in their physical responses to the environment and in their functional behaviors. So, for example, let's imagine that both Jones and Zombie Jones bang their knees against a table. Because they are exact physical duplicates, the pair will go through the exact same physical states and processes. For example, they'll both have slightly damaged skin 
and red marks on their knees. They'll both have the nerves in their legs stimulated. They'll both send signals from the nerves in their legs up through the spinal cord and into the brain. They'll both have the same electrochemical activity in the brain going on in response, say, the firing of, of C fibers. They'll both have the same physical reaction. They'll both wince. They'll both hold their legs and yell, ouch. And if you ask them if they're in pain, they'll both say, yeah, obviously. In other words, we can conceive of Jones and Zombie Jones as being indistinguishable from the outside in every way, having the very same behavioral, physical, and functional properties. Yet, and here's the important point, we could also conceive of Jones and Zombie Jones as being different in at least one important way. In addition to the physical states brought on by the banging of the knee, Jones, the original Jones, also has the internal, vivid conscious feeling of banging his knee, whereas Zombie Jones does not. So even though all the third-person physical states between the two would be the same, Jones, original Jones, has the further internal conscious experience of being in pain, while Zombie Jones does not. Now notice what this means. If zombies are metaphysically possible, and they clearly are, then physical reductionism is, again, false. Remember that according to physical reductionism, behavioral, material, functional properties are all the properties that there are. There is nothing more to mental states. There's nothing over and above them. Yet if zombies are conceivable, and again, they clearly are, this means that the physical properties of the brain and the mental experience of consciousness are not identical. They cannot be the same thing. It is clearly possible to have all the physical properties involved in being in a state of pain, and yet still lack qualia, or the what-its-likeness of the conscious experience. Now, the upshot of these thought experiments is that your mental processes and states cannot be reduced to, cannot be identical with the processes and states of any physical system like your brain. Consciousness is something different, something more than anything physical. And you don't need a thought experiment to see this. You can be directly aware of the difference and distinction between your own thoughts and something physical if you just reflect on it. For example, think about the color yellow. The color yellow, as it exists in your first-person conscious experience right now, is qualitative. It has a certain feel to it. There's something that it's like for you to think about yellow. But any physical description of what's happening in your brain when you think about yellow is going to involve a very different set of properties. Quantitative rather than qualitative properties. Properties like size and mass and shape, velocity, and so on. Now, it's easy to see, just by using your own light of reason, that your qualitative experience of, of thinking about yellow and the physical description of what's happening in your brain are just not the same thing. Now, it's important to understand what I am not saying here. I'm not denying that conscious states are causally related to or correlated with brain states. I think they clearly are related in these ways, as neuroscience has shown us. What I am saying is that however the relationship between the mind and the brain works, the mind cannot be reducible to the brain 
or any merely physical function. They cannot literally be the same thing as physical reductionism claims. But it's not just the existence of qualia that poses a big problem for physical reductionism. There's another feature of consciousness that is even more difficult to account for in wholly physical terms, and it's called intentionality. The word intentionality comes from the Latin word intendere, which means to point or to aim. Intentionality is that feature of, of mental states, thoughts, beliefs, desires, perceptions, etc., by virtue of which they are about or point to something beyond themselves. Here's another fascinating aspect of your mental states. They're about something. They point to, they mean, they represent, they are directed to something beyond themselves. Your thought about a banana is about the banana. Your experience of the redness of an apple is directed at the apple. Your memory of a loved one who has passed represents your loved one. Your desire to go to the beach is intended toward the beach, and so on. Again, you can check this for yourself. I challenge you to form a single thought that isn't about anything at all. And I think you'll find that it's impossible. Your mental states are irreducibly intentional. Now think about this. How can any physical material thing be about something else? Is a rock about anything external to itself? Are the molecules that make up the rock about anything? Are the atoms that make up the molecules of the rock about anything? Clearly the answer is no. But what about your physical brain? It's just like the rock insofar as it's made of the same basic material stuff. Can your physical brain literally be about anything? Can the molecules in your brain be about anything? Can the atoms that make up the molecules in your brain be about anything? Here's the problem for physical reductionism. How can a mindless swarm of particles ever be about anything else? How could they mean anything, represent anything, intend anything? They can't, and everybody knows it. Alex Rosenberg, a well-known philosopher of science and staunch atheist materialist, sums up the problem of intentionality well when he asks, quote, How can one clump of stuff anywhere in the universe be about some other clump of stuff anywhere in the universe? Physics has ruled out the existence of clumps of matter of the required sort. There are just fermions and bosons and combinations of them. None of that stuff is just all by itself about any other stuff. There is nothing in the whole universe, including, of course, all the neurons in your brain, that just by its nature or composition do the job of being about some other clump of matter, end quote. Now, you might be asking, how then does Alex Rosenberg account for the intentionality of mental states if he's a materialist? No, he doesn't. He thinks that intentionality is unaccountable in the language of physics. And so he just denies that we have mental states. He denies that there is any such thing as thoughts, since a purely physical description of the universe doesn't include them. This is a radical position, to be sure, but at least it's a consistent one. So the hard problem of consciousness is this. How can a physical reductionist story about behavior or brain states or functional relations possibly account for the subjective conscious experience of first-person awareness? We have here what philosopher Joshua Rasmussen has aptly called a construction problem 
which is the problem of building conscious awareness from the mindless bits of matter. How can you possibly construct conscious awareness, the what it's like of qualia, from materials that are mindless, tasteless, odorless, colorless, feelingless? How can you possibly construct intentionality, the aboutness of mental states, from materials that aren't about anything? Swarms of particles are simply and obviously the wrong materials for building consciousness. It takes more to get consciousness than the mere reconfiguring of matter. We can make all the quantitative changes possible to the basic stuff of matter. We can manipulate, si we can manipulate size, shape, position, motion, velocity, acceleration, and so on. But we'll never be able to derive consciousness from this process because we will simply be using the wrong kind of materials. Again, there's more to the mind than the collocation of mindless matter. There's more to the mental than the physical. And it gets worse. Because not only does the physical reductionist have to account for the various elements of conscious experience in purely physical terms, but he also needs to explain the unity of conscious experience. The unity of consciousness is yet another major problem confronting the task of building consciousness from the ground up. Conscious experience does not consist in a jumble of disconnected perceptions, but is unified by a single field of perception at any given time and is anchored in a subject of perception across time. There are two elements to the unity of consciousness mentioned here that need to be accounted for. The first is perspectival unity, or the unification of consciousness into a single perspective. At any given moment, you're aware of a multitude of conscious experiences. For example, right now, if you're watching this video, you're aware of many things all at once. The various colors, shapes, and sounds of the screen, the computer on your desk, the phone in your hand, the smell in your room, the itch on your arm, the feeling of hunger in your gut, the excitement of learning new things, the challenge of thinking about consciousness, and so on. Yet, your conscious awareness right now is not of a bunch of discrete and isolated sensory and mental experiences, but of one unified perspective. You are not just a bundle of conscious experiences, a jumble of thoughts, feelings, and intentions. You are a self that unifies these experiences into a first-person perspective. In addition to perspectival unity, there is also subject unity to your conscious experience, or unification of first-person perspectives over time. Not only are the various things you are aware of at any moment unified into a single first-person perspective, but your first-person perspective is also unified throughout your conscious life. You have different perspectives over time, yet at every time, it is you having those various perspectives. You are the subject that unifies your perspectives over time. So just as you're not a jumble of conscious experiences, you're also not a sequence of conscious perspectives. Rather, you're an enduring subject who has perspectives over time. Again, here's the further problem for the physical reductionist. How do we account for the unity of consciousness, both perspectival and subject unity, by appealing to mindless swarms 
of particles. Now this problem, which is distinct from the hard problem of consciousness, also has a famous name in the literature. It's called the binding problem. This problem confronts not only physical reductionist attempts to build consciousness from the ground up, but any attempt whatsoever to do so, even if we assume, by the way, that the fundamental bits of matter that we're working with are themselves in some way conscious. And this is because, as Joshua Rasmussen explains, quote, there is more to constructing a conscious being than constructing individual contents of consciousness. Even if we could make all the contents of consciousness from scratch, it doesn't follow that we could assemble them into a unified conscious being. There remains the challenge of seeing how to unify conscious bits into a conscious unity. That is the binding problem. End quote. To see the problem, imagine that we were somehow able to construct a computer chip that could think. And then we were able to construct another computer chip that could feel. And then a third one that could intend. And imagine that we placed all three of these chips into the head of a robot, with each chip generating its own contents of consciousness. Even if it were possible to make these chips from scratch, and it's not, there is still the further problem of unifying what each chip does into a single conscious awareness. I mean, it seems that, at best, instead of getting a, a self-conscious or sentient robot, what we would have are three distinct centers of robot consciousness. We'd have a thinking center, a feeling center, and an intending center, but with nothing to bind them together. Now, this shows that conscious parts and pieces are not enough. A subject of consciousness is needed to account for the unity of conscious experience. Now, the binding problem is even more difficult than you might think, for it seems to be confronted by a vicious kind of circularity. Recall that conscious experiences are unified by a first-person perspective grounded in a conscious subject. This means that in order to get consciousness from the ground up, you'll need to create a conscious being from the ground up, a being that can be the subject of first-person awareness over time. But now we're in trouble. As Rasmussen again explains, quote, these unities of consciousness present a problem with building a conscious being from scratch. For if we build a conscious being from scratch, then we cannot start with a conscious being. But a conscious being is precisely what creates subjective and perspectival unities. The conscious being provides the conscious center of the conscious unities. From a single conscious center, there is a single field of awareness, which unifies many little bits of consciousness into an organized whole. Without the conscious center, then, there would be no awareness, and so no conscious unities. But how does a conscious center ever come to be? To construct a center of consciousness, one would need to construct a conscious being, since the being is the unifying element. This construction project is like constructing a house all at once, without first constructing or assembling its parts." End quote. So, we're stuck in a circle. In order to build something from the ground up that has a unity of consciousness, we have to start with bits of matter that can be used to construct conscious states. But in order to have conscious states, we first need to have a conscious being to act as a center of consciousness. It doesn't seem that we can get one without the other. 
We need both at the same time, but that's precisely the problem. We can't have both at the same time if we are constructing consciousness piece by piece. So the prospects of physical reductionism being able to explain consciousness is looking pretty bleak, as does the prospect of building a sentient or conscious machine from the ground up. There are some massive hurdles that must be cleared for either project to have any hope of success. As we've seen, first there's the, the hard problem of consciousness, which is essentially a construction problem. You've got to somehow get first-person conscious awareness, including both qualia and intentionality, from mindless swarms of particles. Particles, or molecules, just don't seem to be the right kind of materials for building consciousness. And then there's the binding problem. Even if you could somehow get over the hard problem of consciousness, you still have to find a way to bind the, the various and fleeting experiences of consciousness into a single and unified conscious awareness that endures through time. Now, these problems are formidable in themselves, and neuroscientists and cognitive scientists, philosophers of mind, are no closer today to solving these problems than they were 50 years ago. But even if they can somehow solve these problems by providing something like a complete physical explanation of the subjectivity and the unity of consciousness, even if they can somehow pull this off, there is yet another characteristic of human intelligence that is going to be even harder to account for in physical terms. And we'll look at this next time as we, can, as we continue our examination of AI and the mind.